The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Everybody, the time probe came back. We're going ahead with the operation. Great! Good work. That's great, David. You take over here, Andy. Remember, everything goes into the computer. Everything. Well, you better make it back in a hurry, amigo, or there won't be anything for you to come back to. According to our projections, the war should start any day now. There's just no way we're going to make it to the end of this year. It's what we put in the computers that can make the difference. Maybe we can keep from blowing ourselves to kingdom come. Now, David, that's what this place looks like 200 years from now. It's in ruins. And has been for quite some time. Which means everything we projected is correct. There is going to be a war. And it will destroy most of our world as we know it. When? That's what we have to know. We knew when and how it started. Then we'd at least have a chance to prevent it. None of the earlier probes showed any sign of life. No. We're guessing that the people that survived went underground. It had to take a hundred years for the air to clear. There's no telling how long it took before they came outside again. The people you see show a fairly high degree of technology. Their clothes, their weaponry, and they speak English well. He's in a cage. Obviously, some kind of um, sophisticated society must have survived. She's right. The gun proves that. It blew a hole in the wall of the ballistics lab when we were testing it. Incidentally, you'll take that back with you. Well, if they're that advanced, they might have some concept of time travel. Exactly. That's why they mustn't know who you are or what you're after. Because if we succeed in finding out what caused the war, we can stop it now, and our civilization will go on. And theirs will have never existed. Not, not a one will have been born. It's not a great choice, is it? Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, January 28, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And this is just right on WBCQ 5.110 megahertz. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Not a great choice, indeed. Every choice has a consequence, even a non-choice if there is such a thing, if you stop to think about it. And the nature of existence is such that none of us can escape this fundamental law of causality. Now, last week's broadcast on our search for the big capital T truth precipitated several conversations and responses since then. Notice I didn't use the word caused. <laughs> I got a smile out of uh, a listener, Paul T., who posted on our Facebook page, Head is spinning. What I don't know could fill a warehouse, he writes. Uh, you and me both, Paul. As I mentioned at the end of last week's show, for me, even broaching a topic like this is a learning experience. For those who heard last week's show, you may recall that another Just Right listener, Murray, wrote in to ask us, how do we come to know what we what we know? How is human knowledge acquired? Basically, you know, how, how, how can we know the truth and how do we know who to believe or tell the difference between belief and actual knowledge? And a lot of questions there and happily we had basically one answer. And as we discovered last week, truth is a matter of knowledge. Knowledge that corresponds to reality and discoverable only through reason. And that's true. 
But we plan to move on from that point today, so if you missed last week's show, well, there's nothing to panic about, because you can always visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you will find all past broadcasts of Just Right Online, and of course, in addition to hearing us on WBCQ 5.110 MHz, you can follow us on Twitter, you can like us or comment on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and of course, as always, write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And thank you to all who listened in last week and found the show to be among your favorites and perhaps the most compelling. I was really surprised. And of course, Murray, who, who started this whole mess and got us into this can of worms, he wrote to say, hey guys, um, he said, uh, I totally enjoyed this show. In fact, it's my favorite to date and I've shared it on Facebook with a few friends. I had to do a bit of backpedaling and explaining uh, with my wife as she thought I threw her under the bus. But all is good now, lol. <laughs> she is intimidatingly bright, and I'm very lucky, he writes. And look at Marie, don't sweat it. No one was thrown under the bus, even if we occasionally find ourselves there. Your wife's response to you was a properly skeptical question. Uh, healthy skepticism, you might say, as opposed to uh, a skepticism that's unaffected by facts and truth even after they've been apprehended. And uh, so the question I posed to you was really directed at you on what you know, the question you should have asked her. So if anyone was thrown under the bus, uh, well, I'll just carry on. And Murray continues, I've listened to the show a couple of times and still need to go over it a couple more times. I also totally enjoyed the first segment by Robert Vaughn and found the section on the lyrics particularly interesting as I am a musician and struggle with lyrics. As you read my words, or as you read my words on the air, I'm sure you noticed that I paraphrase and quote you guys a lot. And in one of my songs, I actually quote Bob with his quote, G is for gun, G for green, G for good, G for government line, and it works out nicely. <laughs> Boy, I'd love to hear that sometime, Marie. Send us a link if it's possible. And, and he concludes, anyway, thanks for the fantastic answer to my questions. I will process, conceptualize, contextualize, and integrate it for some time to come, I'm sure. And that's part of what we're going to help out with today. Murray, we're going to continue that journey uh, as we carry on today. Rob writes us, um, he says, hi guys, further to your recent broadcast, while the bikers and the beatniks rose out of World War II, it was the assassination of JFK that st started the, quote, blame America first, end quote, movement. Coupled with the Vietnam War, the hippie movement was born, and the resulting cultural rot and indifference, or lack thereof, regarding rugged, rugged individualism, is still on the march today as these people are now running Washington. And he adds, oh yeah, just a sidebar, my favorite commie song of the 60s is If I Had a Hammer, written and performed by the irreverent Pete Seeger, end quote. <laughs> An interesting and valid observation, Rob. As I've learned in preparing today's Just Right and from last week's broadcast, there can be many valid and correct cause and effect explanations, even for a single event or object or phenomenon. And there's nothing wrong in your spin on the social political trend since JFK's assassination that would contradict other valid observations and conclusions on the very same phenomenon. Stick around and you'll see what I mean on the subject of, uh, quote, how many, end quote, 
causes there can be behind a single thing or event. And a quick thank you to listener um, Trevor, who sent us a couple of cover photos in the form of JPEGs, one of the book Coming Out of the Woods by Wallace Kaufman, and the other photo of the album cover Thick as a Brick by Jethro Tull, no doubt in reference to Robert's take on communism, and my mentioning an Ian Anderson tune, Saucity, You're a Woman, uh, which, by the way, uh, appeared in the, in the Jethro Tull album Benefit. Still, I prefer to thick as a brick cover. That's you know that's the one that looks like a newspaper from the St. Cleve Chronicle and Linwell at Linwell Advertiser, uh, a great cover. And then there's a very special message from the person who sponsors us on WBCQ, who we really haven't mentioned since uh, we started uh, broadcasting on WBCQ. And that's Paul Lambert, who says he's very proud to sponsor us there. And he writes about last week's show, In my opinion, this was the single best episode of Just Right so far. I will have to re-listen several times and take notes and look up most of the things you spoke about. I want to understand more. It really eases the soul to hear such rational thoughts expressed in the midst of a world of falsehood and craziness. Well, thank you, Paul. Now, you know, what was it about our show last week that caused some of this feedback? Well, there's no one just right answer. Stick with us for the balance of today's show, and you'll discover why I'm not just posing this question to be playful or to be, you know, to be in jest. Now, if you tuned in last week, you'll recall there was a great quote from anti- antiquity that we presented. Quote, if the art of the shipbuilding, if the art of shipbuilding rather were in the wood, we would have ships by nature. And Dr. Daniel Robinson from his Great Ideas and Philosophy series illustrated very clearly how a ship is, quote, not caused by the materials from which it is made, even though, and this is very important, without those materials, you know, the wood, the sails, etc., the ship would not be possible. And he posed this dilemma of how we can determine the true cause of something if our understanding of a cause meant, quote, that without which something would not exist, end quote. But surprise, it wasn't that simple and straightforward, was it? In addressing this dilemma, as we neared the end of our show last week, we heard Dr. Robinson mention a few of the causal modalities, of which apparently there are four. The formal cause, the material cause, the efficient cause, and the final cause. And the really creepy, counterintuitive, seeming non-linear concept, and are you ready for this? The final cause is the first in conception, quote-unquote. Not exactly a first cause, but about the closest thing to it. We didn't have enough time to examine these modes in a way to do them justice last week. So if all this is sounding rather circular and confusing, have no fear. Dr. Daniel Robinson, from his Great Ideas and Philosophy series, will make it all very understandable. Over the next seven and a half minutes or so, we'll learn more about the nature of cause and effect than most people will learn in their entire lifetime. And that is not only true, but maybe it's a tragedy because it's true. Now, given that we have these faculties and powers, how is Aristotle going to understand and approach the problem of knowledge? Well, for Aristotle, to know something is essentially to know the cause of it. Happy is the man who knows the causes of things, is the ancient maxim. 
To possess this is to possess what in the Greek is called episteme. To have that kind of systematic scientific understanding of things is to know the causes by which things like that are brought about. Aristotle on this subject returns ever so briefly, without ever mentioning the dialogue, to the problem Socrates faces in in Mino. The difference between Aristotle's and Plato's approach is fundamental. Aristotle says, in words to this effect, that when we claim that someone knows that a right-angled triangle has 180 degrees, this can be understood in one of two ways. Someone may know that a triangle has 180 degrees because he's actually got some sort of measuring instrument, has measured the angles, and sees that the sum of the angles in a triangle come to 180 degrees. But someone may know that, by definition, a triangle has 180 degrees, and thus knows that this is true of all triangles without measuring any of them. Now, what is the difference between the knowledge of one sort and that of the other? Well, in one case, what is known is known by experience, such knowledge not rising to the level of episteme. So on Aristotle's account, developed knowledge is a knowledge of the regulative principles and laws that govern the affairs of things, and not simply a factual knowledge about this or that. But of course, to say that knowledge requires an understanding of the causes of things is to raise a question about just what a cause is. The Greek word, aitia, is used indifferently across cases. But as Aristotle is quick to point out in the metaphysics and in his treatise on physics, cause is not a univocal term. It actually has rather different senses. This is a point that can be easily confused. Let me take as an example some statue or bust or work of sculpture, something that all tourists will know about. Now, everyone traveling to Rome Well, surely all Americans, when they go to Rome, uh, generally head first for the Piazza Navona to buy very, very expensive coffee and then treat themselves to uh, Bernini's Fountain of the Rivers. It's a great work of sculpture, and at least you can go home and say you saw Bernini's Fountain of the Rivers. Now, suppose you came from Mars, you landed in the Piazza Navona, uh, right in front of the Fountain of the Rivers, and then asked tourists, What's the cause of that? Let's say you pointed to the fountain of the rivers and you said, what caused that? You ask some knowing person to account for it. Well, understand that many entirely correct answers can be given to that question. One answer might be this. Look, to have anything like this, you've got to have some kind of material that will retain shape. You you can't get something like this if the universe consisted only of air or fluids. So if what you mean by a cause is that which, in the absence of which, something else could not be, then surely one of the causes of the fountain of the rivers is the material of which it is made. Absent that kind of matter, you couldn't have that kind of thing. Now this answer reaches what Aristotle means by the material cause of something. Of course, the Martian at that point might say, Well, look, lots of things can be worked into a shape of some sort. This looks like something special. Well, you might go on to say, not only do you need something that is able to take on a certain shape, but in order for it to be this kind of thing, it has to take on a recognizable shape. It has to have a form that reveals the fact 
that indeed it is the representation of something. It stands for something. It's a something of a certain kind. Thus, you can't have a that unless it formally incorporates some special feature constituted of things like it. Now, such formal features ground what Aristotle meant by the formal cause of something. Now, of course, a pile of bricks is not a house. So what you've got to do to make a house is to start piling up the bricks, putting cement between them, and so forth. And when it comes to the fountain of the rivers, someone, or some group, had to stand there with hammer and chisel and start working the material into an identifiable shape, each blow of the hammer on the chisel having some definite effect on the matter and thus giving shape and form to the block itself, blow by blow. The material is being changed. And each one of those interactions, each blow, now is part of the efficient cause of what ultimately appears as the fountain of the rivers. It's the billiard ball colliding, hitting another billiard ball, and the second one moving. The impact of the first on the second is the efficient cause of the motion of the second. Now, at that point, if the Martian is an inquisitive chap, he might say, well, how do you know where to hit the material? And at that point, Aristotle would be inclined to say, you don't know where to hit this block of matter unless you already have in mind, as it were, what it is you're trying to bring about. That is, unless you've got Bernini there with this end or goal or aim in mind, this goal, in the Greek, this telos, the fountain of the rivers simply isn't going to take place. Only when the matter is worked according to a plan or goal. Thus, the ultimate understanding of the cause of the object, the ultimate explanation of the fountain of the rivers, is just that intelligent design and aim and objective that was Bernini's. And this is what Aristotle means by the final cause. What he means by final cause is that which is the final thing resulting in time, though it is the first in conception. Do you see? Initially conceived first, the final cause is the, the end as it is actually brought about. Unless you have the intelligent plan to begin with, none of the rest of these causal modalities will operate to any effect at all. So all of the other causal modalities choosing the right material, giving it a certain shape, striking blows, all of these are done, what? For the sake of something. And what they are done for the sake of is the original plan or design or pattern or goal. A causal explanation that includes these considerations is called, after the Greek telos, a teleological explanation. You explain an object or event by uncovering or identifying the purposes plans, designs, and goals that the object or event realizes or instantiates when finally brought about. Some great realizations made by Dr. Robinson there. One that caught my eye was the one on final cause. Final cause is the first in conception. Very interesting thought. 
I thought I'd take a few moments to review and attempt to integrate some of the things we learned on past broadcasts of Just Right, particularly shows 258 and 297 on the issues of cause and effect. And to listener Paul T., I have to warn you that if you thought your head was spinning about last week's show, check out the final quarter of show 297 where we took a look at the very idea of there being no cause at all to something. Another point I'm going to briefly attempt to bring into today's discussion. But first a warning about integrated knowledge versus specific factual knowledge. On such an incredibly broad and grand theme as the one we're looking at today, one thing you have to guard against is the belief that all of these theories and philosophical discussions have to be memorized or fully understood before it becomes integrated into your way of thinking. It's not so, you know. I'm no different than the average guy when it comes to remembering all of the specific facts and logical sequences that form my integrated knowledge. If you think I'm going to walk out of the studio after our show today and retain full memory of everything that I've just talked about and reviewed, well, you've got another think coming, as they say. Where I might differ from the average guy is that I make a point of exposing myself to the history and formal study of these issues. If I need to recall specifics, I can always find them again, as long as I recall the big picture. And as Lord Christopher Monckton once explained as a guest on our show, it may not always give you the answer you seek, but it is knowledge that will help you spot the rot. So personally, I've learned to count on the likes of Dr. Robinson, uh, Ayn Rand, Scottish philosopher John McMurray, Isabel Patterson, and others who all seem to share not identical views by any means, but the same general values and philosophical hierarchy of those values, the four branches of philosophy being structured on the pillars of reality, reason, self, and consent. You'd be utterly amazed, if you lean towards objective thinking as such, by how many learned and educated professors in universities and colleges across the continent are completely oblivious to the fundamental nature of cause, causality and, and, and who reject openly reality and reason. Uh, I think fewer would be amazed by how many elected politicians are exactly the same because their perpetual deficit financing reflects the perpetual deficit in their thinking, thinking that emanates from the left where the motivation is to live without effort. And if you don't understand the motivation, you'll never understand why the left does what it does. Now, this brings us to something to really mess your mind up with, and that's the thoughts of John McMurray. And John McMurray expressed the same idea of knowledge as being relevant only when significant, uh, you know, relative to us as human beings. There's a great deal of information out there, he would say, and most of it mischievous and irrelevant to purpose and cause. And as he emphasized in his book, The Self as Agent, quote, so long as the use of the notion of cause falls within action and so has a practical reference, it is meaningful and indispensable. I guess, in other words, he's saying someone actually exists and has a choice to act on the knowledge of a particular cause. That's what he's saying. And he continues, when, however, we are concerned with purely theoretical construction, the term cause becomes a source of embarrassment. Scientific theory, therefore, seeks to replace it by a less objectionable notion, which is the idea of natural law. So instead of inquiring for the cause of an event, we ask for a law in accordance with that which happens. This idea of a law of nature is, of course, anthropomorphic. 
in the bad sense of the term, he thinks. A law is a general prescription which an agent issues for the actions of another agent. A law of nature, quote, is said to be not prescriptive, but merely descriptive. Strictly speaking, it is not a law at all. And he, and he notes that the notion of natural law rests upon the concept of the other as continuant. And he says to continue is to remain unchanged throughout a period of time. Continuance, then, is the character of having a being in time that does not alter. And the continuant is that which persists without change. And then he says, the concept of cause is inherently self-contradictory. It is the conception of an agent that is not an agent, the negation of agency. Here he's talking about in nature, outside of human activity. In other words, the cause turns out to be merely another event, which must itself be referred to, or which must itself refer to another cause. An infinite regress of causes faces us in every case, and of course that makes sense. This is what is meant when people say that a causal explanation only tells us how things happen and not why they happen, or better still, that it describes the course of events without explaining it, says McMurray. A law of nature, then, is a pattern of continuance, and the discovery of such laws, quote-unquote, is the discovery of such patterns in our experience of the other. To say of any group or of phenomena that it obeys a law is to assert that it contains a pattern of change which recurs without change. <laughs> now, having said all this, McMurray concludes that first, the substitution of the idea of law for the idea of cause in science does not solve the causal dilemma. It excludes it from consideration by avoiding the question which requires a causal answer. Finally, the continuant has no future, says McMurray. Time, as we have seen, is the form of action and action distinguishes past from future as the determinate and the undetermined, respectively. The determinate is the past, and the continuant is already completely determined. I guess so he's saying, in other words, time as projected into past and future by people doesn't really exist. Only the present exists. There's no past as an existent. There's no future as an existent. The past is determined. The future is the indeterminate. The present is the point of action. An action is that which exists. Now, from Leonard Peikoff, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, he says on cause and effect, uh, very briefly, cause, a, cause and effect is a universal law of reality. The law of causality is a law of identity applied to action. There again comes that, that whole play of action. All actions are caused by entities. A is A. The law of causality does not state that every entity has a cause. Now, that's interesting. An entity may be said to have a cause only if it is the kind of ent entity that is non-eternal. And then what one actually explains causally is a process. The fact of its coming into being or another thing's passing away. Action is the crux of the law of cause and effect. It is action that is caused by entities. Since the Renaissance, it has been common for philosophers to speak as though actions directly cause other actions, bypassing entities altogether. The idea is senseless. Motions do not act. They are actions. It is entities which act and cause. To be is to be something, and to be something is to act accordingly. Natural law is not a feature superimposed by some agency on an otherwise chaotic world. There's no possibility of such chaos. Nor is there any possibility of a chance event if chance means an exception to causality. 
Cause and effect is part of the fabric of reality as such. One may no more ask who is responsible for natural law, which amounts to asking who caused causality, than one may ask who created the universe. The answer to both questions is the same. Existence exists. Now, we've talked about causality. That's what Leonard Peikoff had to say. And um, we've talked about causality, cause and consequence, many times on the show in the past, both from a physics point of view and from a philosophical point of view. Now, mankind's current knowledge of cause and effect has led some to creative and speculative thoughts on the subject, to say the least. And one of them is the sci-fi fantasy idea of time travel, either into the past or future, always for purposes related to the given present, which alone (laughs) invalidates any realistic notions of time travel. The proven knowledge of the relativity of time in relation to two objects traveling in greatly different speeds from each other, you know, where one approaches the speed of light and they're moving at different rates of time, but they're still moving forward in time. But that has also led to an unrelated notion that you can travel forward or backward in time. So, for the next six or seven minutes or so, we have a short sci-fi fantasy story to share with you. One that continues from our show opener today, courtesy of the TV series Logan's Run, in which the issue of causality was handled in the, pardon the pun, predictable fashion of time travel fantasy, but that came with a very significant and real lesson about the nature of causality. Something that's hard to avoid without your story having serious and glaring contradictions in its logic. We'll be back. Jessica Eakins has lied to us ever since we met him. An unfortunate but human trait. Well, if he has lied, don't you at least want to know why? I don't know why, but I think it's important, not only to him, but to us. Logan, you've got to help me. Only if we get the truth first. What truth? Why you're here, where you're really from. Where I come from, the people are going to die. Inside that building is the information that can save seven billion lives. Seven billion? There haven't been that many people alive since before the nuclear war. But they are alive. And if I can get back to them, they'll go on living. It's not distance I traveled, it's time. I come from before the Holocaust, from the year 2118. If I can get that information, I may be able to prevent the Holocaust. You come from before the Holocaust? Yes. But it's already happened. Now it has, because I've traveled forward in time. But if I can get back with the information in those computers, I can change the course of history and save all those people from my time. What's in the computers that could change history? The reason the Holocaust started. Look, Sanctuary is my project. I started it in my century, the 22nd century. We fed the computers all the events that were happening in our time. Somewhere in there, maybe a year or five or ten years after my time, is a record of the reason the Holocaust started. I will have put it in there myself. And knowing what started the Holocaust, do you think you can go back and prevent it? I can try. But there's not much time left. Barely five hours. Why couldn't you have told us the truth from the beginning? Because then I didn't care what happened to you. You didn't mean anything to me. You were strangers, and if you ceased to exist, it didn't make any difference. Cease to exist? I don't understand. The principle is really rather simple. 
if he can succeed in stopping the Holocaust, then his civilization will continue. And without the Holocaust, the city of domes would never have been built. And we would not exist. And you want us to help you? I want to save seven billion lives. Look at the information. It's all in there. Then decide. Your seven billion people have been dead a long time. Our world is just beginning. I know. It's a choice I didn't want to have to make. But you do have to. Yes. Rem, is it possible? Can he really prevent the Holocaust? The theory of altering the course of history is quite fascinating. But in practice, I believe it's fruitless. History is a way of catching up with mankind. But you're not absolutely sure. About human behavior, Logan, I'm never absolutely sure. Rem. It's wrong. We'd be wrong to help him. We can't allow him to destroy our world. We have no proof that he could. But he's willing to try. Just as you're willing to stop him. Yes. So, comes a question of which one of you will change history. change history well we know that Eakins was in his own time when the Holocaust happened so we know the result of that but although most of the world was destroyed some people survived are you saying that we could alter that if we keep Eakins here who knows what could happen the whole world may come to an end there may be no survivors if we change just one piece of the past we may also alter our own present you mean we could cease to exist whether we help him to get back or keep him here? So it would seem. It's not much of a choice, is it? Do any of them say anything about my personal future after I return to my own time? In a sense. Were you able to learn the reason for the Holocaust? No. It may be that we didn't know what to look for. What you said about my going back to a dead world... I'm not sure anymore. None of us are sure. And even if I did prevent the Holocaust, how long would the peace last? Ten years? A hundred? Three hundred? It'll happen sometime. There's no alternative. I could stay. There are so many things that I know that the survivors have forgotten. I could help you. In a land where the bomb didn't hang over your heads. A world that you could make into whatever you wanted it to be. How could you stay? Never knowing if you could have saved all those billions of lives. It's one thing we did learn. That you had returned to your own time. Couldn't that be the history I changed? Deacons. You'd never have been chosen for this. If you didn't understand what you had to do. And if in the end I succeed, none of you will have ever existed. I don't want that either.
we're still here. So, nothing's really changed. I didn't think he could succeed. People have often tried to change the course of history. History has had a way of closing in behind them. Well, he had to try. Actually, history did change. <laughs> it fulfilled itself in a manner determined by the choices made by the agents of action. All fantasy, of course. What is not fantasy is that you are listening to Just Right on WBCQ 5.110 MHz, which is both a truth and a fact. Now, the time-traveling character, Eakin, in that excerpt from Logan's Run, was too much the scientist and not enough the philosopher, in my opinion. Much in the same way that economists are too much the economist and too little the philosopher, in the sense that they both rely strictly on the idea of efficient causes, to literally explain everything, and rarely, if ever, refer to what we are calling final cause or the formal cause in the context of Aristotle's teachings, which, of course, refers to the human mind. They each depend entirely on facts and figures and information and data as a given, which, in the absence of understanding cause and effect, or in the human case, motivation would always lead them into disastrous consequences. You know, he says, look at the information, it's all there, and then decide. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know, economists and scientists and politicians, they like watching billiard balls, dominoes. Ever since the discovery and implementation of Newton's laws of motion, all of the humanitarian disciplines have drifted towards the concept of efficient cause as being the source of a given consequence. And it sure makes things easy pr to predict, I guess, but wrong most of the time. It's funny, we hear uh, the android Rem, he's an android in that show, by the way, he says, I'm never absolutely sure about human behavior. It reminded me of what Aristotle qualified himself saying on last week's show when it came to predicting things to do with uh, uh, an agent that has variable behaviors. So you can't always predict like you can with accuracy in physics and the basic sciences. Now, um, of course, as you might have guessed, and here's a spoiler alert, in the end, the time traveler Eakin discovers that it was he who caused the Holocaust because of the invention of his time machine. Although he was misguided in believing it could change history, the story itself, written by Noah Ward, made a very valid observation and philosophical point. And that was this, I think. Even in the given science fiction scenario, despite the fact that history was already written, the choices to make that already written history were still necessary to make and could still not have been based on any vision of a true future without the knowledge of the exact choice necessary to change things rather than fulfill the prophecy. You see what I'm saying? There, there's a, a loop there that has to be recognized. You really couldn't have written the story any other way in order for it to hold together. After all, a plot above all, I mean, above all depends on a logical sequence of cause and effect. And if it doesn't make any sense to you, you're going to hate that story. <laughs> and speaking of truth, here's another interesting observation from our Logan's Run episode. Question. Are you still lying if the intent of your lie, a misstatement of fact, is to protect a truth? Or is even asking such a question just a contradiction? Why didn't you tell us the truth in the beginning, Jessica asked there. And he responds, the, the time traveler responds, because, 
before I didn't care about what happened to you. You were strangers. And suddenly to the time traveler Eakin, what were once mere facts and statistics became knowledge, specifically knowledge of the other, as John McMurray might call it. And he switched from thinking in terms of efficient cause to final cause, in that he could now know and identify these people who became his friends, and he understood them. The knowledge became significant to him. And so we can get a glimpse at what Aristotle, Robinson, and McMurray are getting at when they talk about the issue of the significant knowledge, knowledge that's real and significant to the knower, knowledge that one can act upon. And note this too, that knowledge ends up being the source of morality and ethics. Until the time traveler was faced with the knowledge of his new friends, he didn't really feel like he had a moral choice to make in that light. He was first faced with a moral dilemma in the light of that newfound knowledge of the other. Uh, to say nothing of his general thinking in general, which was <laughs> certainly off track. And just to help make things even more focused, there's the whole investigation of choice itself. Not of a particular choice, but of the process of choosing. And you always have to think, you know, having a choice is a matter of knowledge itself. If you don't know what your choices are, then you don't have any. Now here's a choice I get to make. Let's take a break. First for a cause and effect smile, this time courtesy of the great British TV series Red Dwarf, perhaps the only sci-fi comedy of its time, and then again a brief conclusion from Dr. Daniel Robinson on Aristotle's basic rules of understanding. What was that? Brace yourself for a bit of a shock, mister, but I just saw you die. What? I didn't want you to brace yourself. <laughs> you didn't give me much of a chance. I gave you ample bracing time. No, you didn't. You didn't even pause. Well, I'm sorry. I've just had a rather nasty experience. I have just seen someone I know die in the most hideous, hideous way. <laughs> yeah, me? You were fiddling around with a navvy... I don't want to know. I don't want to know. You don't want to know how you died? No. Was it quick? Well, I wouldn't say it was super fast. Not if you count the thrashing around and the uh, agonised squealing. You're really loving this, aren't you? What a horrible thing to say! It was definitely me. Oh, yes. I don't want to know. How old did I look? How old are you now? 25. How old did I look? Mid-twenties. Smeg! <laughs> I'm not ready. I'm not smegging ready. You did seem surprised. <laughs> Ah, did you actually see me face? You were wearing a hat, but it was definitely you. Well, there you go. I won't wear a hat. And it can't happen, can it? I can live without a hat. Lister, it has happened. You can't change it any more than you can change what you had for breakfast yesterday. Hey, it hasn't happened, has it? It has, will have, going to have happened, happened. But it hasn't actually happened, happened yet, actually. Poppycock. It will be happened, it shall be going to be happening, it will be was an event that could, will have been, taken place in the future. <laughs> Your bucket's been kicked, baby. Says you. Says me and Albert Einstein, thank you very much. Albo and I happen to agree on this one. It's called the theory of relativity. It's not fair. There's loads of things I've never done. Like, I've never had a prawn vindaloo. And I've never read... A book. <laughs> and I wanted to have a family. And I wanted to have loads of practice in the things that you've got to do to get a family. Emergency. There's an emergency going on. What is it, Hal? 
There's an emergency, Dave. The Navicob's overheating. I need your help in the drive room. You said yourself. I can't stop it. Let's get it over with. I'm afraid it can't cope with the influx of data at light speed, Dave. Could you hook it up to the drive computer for me? Maybe it's not going to happen at all. It was you. I saw you. I'm sure it was you. In any case, on Aristotle's account, we do not understand anything fully. We do not have episteme with respect to something unless we're able to comprehend all four causal modalities. To understand what a thing is, is centrally to know what it's for, to know its purpose. The number of things we can know is based on the number of questions we can ask, he says, of which there are the following. Does a thing exist? If it exists, to what degree does it exist? In what relation does it stand to other things? And what is it for? Now this is a central point of the Aristotelian program whether in the domain of knowledge or in the domain of ethics or politics. In the domain of politics, the question would be, what is the polis for? In the domain of ethics, it's going to be, what kind of being am I? And in light of that, how do the actions of mine either realize what is potential within me or stultify what is potential within me? And these potentialities are, in a manner of speaking, what I am here for. And how do I live my life in such a way as to honor the central fact of my being? Michael, are you okay? I'm all right. Michael, I don't know what you saw in your machine, but I remember a few weeks ago you came back from your lab and you were pale. You asked me the strangest question. If I knew it wouldn't work out for you and I before we were together, would I have done it? What did you say? That I wouldn't trade our time for anything. It's all we are, the sum of our experiences. Besides, some of the best things in life are total mistakes. I don't know if I'd label some of the, quote, best things in life as mistakes. <laughs> My sense is what was being called a mistake there was not a mistake as such, but a choice that resulted in unexpected or unpredictable consequences. I don't see how you can say it's a mistake if the answer was just right, pardon the pun. Essentially, the more important message of what Uma Thurman was saying in the very entertaining film Pay uh, Paycheck, by the way, is that life is an end in itself. Your life is the end, the, quote, sum of your experiences, which may be the greatest truth we'll ever have to come to terms with, something that a lot of people really fear doing. Now, if you haven't seen the movie Paycheck, it's, it's one of my favorites. It, it, it was a science fiction fantasy, not about a metaphysical time travel theme, 
but strictly an epistemological one, which made it really different. It took, it a, it took the theme a step outside of the usual. Uh, you know, the usual normal time-traveling themes you might find in such movies, which I still find entertaining. I, I always enjoy them. But in the movie Paycheck, no one was actually able to physically travel in time, but they were able to gain knowledge of the future, well into the far distant. And it was strictly the effect of that knowledge that became the focal point of the film, and that's what made the movie so unique for me. Really enjoyed it, and, and we'll be hearing more from this film in, on future shows, you can bet on that. And uh, that's yet, a, yet another theme to be isolated for a future expansion of our discussion. And what I'm stating, of course, right now is uh, not a prediction of what I'll do in the future, but an intention of what I plan to do on a future show. Why I bring that up is because the whole role of intentions versus results is another dimension of understanding cause and effect, one that we explored via John McMurray on some past Just Right broadcasts. So just a few thoughts on, on what we just heard there. Another observation I wanted to make before we close the show off is, have you ever taken a closer look at the word because? Just the word because. Tear it in two, and you'll notice there are really two words hidden in one, the word be and the word cause. And you can see the essence of that word. What is the cause of our being? I think people who, who end an explanation or, or answer a question with the single word because <laughs> are being rather axiomatic, if you stop to think about it. Uh, that's philosophy humor for uh, those who aren't too sure. But the whole idea of, you know, you, and because, you follow that with an explanation. You, you, you demonstrate your understanding of, that you understand why something is, why the being is, what was the cause of that being. So it's just interesting to see the root of some of the words that we use in common daily language and how they pertain to such a deep philosophical issue. And so much of this was done uh, by the Greek philosophers and, and people of, of ages so long past. Now, in conclusion, here's a, a possibly disturbing thought. And, and I don't think it should be too disturbing, but I know a lot of people find it disturbing. In a way, it's about what many might call eternity. <laughs> and you might wonder why we even worry about such things or even concern ourselves with such concepts. I mean, of what value is knowledge about eternity in the face of eternity, let alone knowledge itself? I mean, in the face of eternity? I was challenged by one of our listeners to last week's show during a verbal discussion that the whole idea of any kind of quote-unquote truth still being valid in the absence of humanity and in a universe where the stars and planets may have formed into some other dis dis dissipated matter or whatever, or that the idea of the Pythagorean theorem, you know, was still being true, let alone a truth, he thought that was pretty far-fetched far and that there was no relevance to it, I guess. Um, I'm not sure if I understood the point totally, but that's how I took it to mean. To which I would first say... Certainly it wouldn't be relevant to the non-existent beings of that time being projected or envisaged, but it is relevant to humanity today, and that's the whole point. Everything's about today. You know, it might well be that in the, in the grander scheme of things, humanity itself is but a brief burst of life endowed with reason. 
and will eventually be extinguished from existence, like, like, like forever, you know? Then all humanity's knowledge will have been for naught and will be lost. But, if you believe the philosophers, the truth will remain. And I think that is a truth, if not for humanity, but for some other species or beings of rational capabilities uh, to discover in their own languages, using their own symbols, their numbers, their letters, as long as those symbols represent true relationships of the universe in which they exist, they also will represent valid knowledge and can be employed by any rational being who may exist. But this grand view of humanity, and you might think it's just science fiction or fantasy or something you don't want to think about because you have this idea of eternal life and you want to live forever. But I don't think it's really any different from each individual's view of his or her own life. You could pose the same dilemma, couldn't you? And you could ask the same question, like, why bother with anything? In the end, we're all going to end up dead, irrespective of what we do with the one life we have. It's all going to end up the same. And that belief, too, has a certain truth to it, and it is a philosophy, but the attitude is one of nihilism and skepticism, and quite frankly, I think, kind of depressing and unrealistic. After all, remember, your life is an end in itself, and so, too, humanity is an end in itself. If, like individuals, every sentient species, too, ends up dying in the end, and we see all kinds of species passing through existence and non-existence on planet Earth, it changes nothing with respect to either the validity of knowledge or the existence of truth, even in the absence of any beings who might miraculously benefit from the discovery of those things. So, I guess on our last pause, I'm going to address something we haven't talked about yet, and that's first cause. And this always brings us to the idea of God, of course. Um, Aristotle, by the way, made, made a point of avoiding the idea that we have to, when we talk about an intelligence in the universe, we're not talking about a deity. We're talking about the intelligence and rationality of people. But, uh, you know, I could ask, do you believe in the existence of a supreme being? You know, it's a question you don't want to be bringing up unannounced at the Christmas or Thanksgiving dinner gathering. Now, I don't know what your concept of God might be, but for me, the term, the existence of a supreme being, is a redundancy in a way that causes a misconception. That some sort of supreme being exists independently of existence itself, as in the existence of a supreme being. But they're one and the same. Existence is the supreme being, and the supreme being is existence, at least in my view, and I've expressed it before on the show. And it, to me, it's the only thing that fits into the grander scheme of things. And from this quote-unquote supreme being emanate all of the properties and principles that create what has been called the law of causality. As philosopher John McMurray warned us, however, <laughs> beware that the law of causality and any laws of nature are not prescriptive, like, like man-made laws, but descriptive of the properties and principles that are given to us in nature. This is why the whole issue of nature comes up in the first place. They're rather axiomatic. We can either learn about them or ignore them to our peril or maybe even indifference. A lot of things we can be indifferent to. The idea of, of, 
of cause and consequence, of course, leads us to believe in yet another contradictory concept, and that's this concept of first cause, which in turn leads to a myriad of confusions and misunderstandings in every field from physics to metaphysics to epistemology. Uh, as you know, we've always said on the show, there ain't no such thing as nothing, honey, otherwise wouldn't that be something? which rejects the idea of a first cause in the sense of existence itself. You can't have a non-existence. There is no such thing as nothing. <laughs> if it's, it's a contradiction. You, can't, you don't find a zero divided by a zero. Mathematics rejects it. Various forms of contradictions are encountered whenever you deal with this issue at that axiomatic point. And so you have to accept it, that there is no quote-unquote, first cause in that sense of the word, but very much in the sense that uh, um, Dr. Robinson was referring to earlier. But you know, the, the space-time continuum, as it is called, is perhaps yet another expression of a quote-unquote supreme being or a god. Contrary to first cause premises, the space-time continuum you know, has no beginning and no end in the sense of time itself. As we've so often pointed out in the past, time is inside the universe of existence, not outside it. And so, too, human beings are inside and part of nature and subject to the so-called laws of nature, from which we cannot exempt ourselves. So, in the light of reason and of knowledge, we know that if we see a man fly, <laughs> it's not because he's escaped the law of gravity, but because he has used that very law to elevate him in the air, using some form of technology whether it's as simple as a hang glider or as complex as a space shuttle. Gravity becomes a cause of the shuttle rising, a material cause. See, I'm picking up on this, words I don't, haven't, don't usually use in my vocabulary. But that space shuttle did not evolve without the hand, not of God, but of man, to make that seeming miracle possible. The agent of final cause and of first conception is we, humanity. But hey, if you have figured out a way to defy the law of gravity, be sure to send me a memo and I'll be sure to let our listeners know. Hey, you've been listening to Just Right on WBCQ 5.110 MHz and you can find every past broadcast of Just Right online at www.justrightmedia.org. Be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. <laughs> this is me. I mean you. I mean, I am you. This is you aged 171, Dave. I know you're there. Because when I was your age, I saw me at my age telling you what I'm about to tell you. <laughs> You've got to tell you when you get to be me. Thank heavens you've still got all your marbles, Mr. <laughs> I've got to tell you about Bexley. Who's Bexley? I was always going to call my second son Bexley after Jim Bexley Speed. Your second son? What were you going to call your first son? Jim, after Jim Bexley Speed. It wasn't you, Rimasaur, in the drive room. It was Bexley. Rimmy, you saw me son die? <laughs> Wait a minute. I don't understand how you're supposed to get two sons without a woman on this ship. Neither do I. But it's going to be a laugh finding out.
Really? I'm going to have two sons. Isn't it fantastic? But one of them dies. Yeah, well, everyone dies. You're born and you die. The bit in the middle is called life, and that's still to come. 